Chapter Twenty Three of That Affair at Portstead Manor by Gladys Edson Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mercedes Quero to the fore. Ask Lady Ursula. That was all Mr. Clavering could anger or frighten Rose into saying, nor would she account in any way for the return of the necklace. In fact, her surprise at learning that it had been returned appeared so genuine that he was forced to believe that she really knew nothing about it from the moment it had passed into Thompson's hands. She did, however, give a rather lame but apparently truthful explanation of how she had come to write to Robert Sylvester for aid. He was always a kind-spoken young gentleman, she said, and had sometimes taken notice of her. She was absolutely penniless and friendless in London. Thompson had not sent her his address, as he had promised to do, so she could not apply to him, and owing to the circumstances under which she had left the manor, she dared not try for another position as lady's maid. In her difficulty, Robert Sylvester had suddenly occurred to her as a possible source of assistance. It seemed she had once approached him on the subject of getting her a place in the chorus of some musical piece, knowing that he had a wide acquaintance among the London music halls and variety theatres. He had promised to look her up a place, and then had promptly forgotten all about it. Rose, remembering his offer, had sought out his London lodgings, and, not finding him there, had written to him at the manor. Nothing more than this could Mr. Clavering wring from the girl, but the fact that she was possessed of intense bitterness toward Lady Ursula, for some cause at which she would only vaguely hint, and in which Thompson seemed to be unaccountably concerned, was very evident. It was clear, too, that her trust in Thompson was shattered, and that the disclosure which she had threatened in her letter to Robert referred to him, and would not be long delayed if he did not speedily fulfill his promise to her. Mr. Clavering finally left the girl, still in an excited and bitter mood, and re-entering the waiting hansom was driven at once to Waterloo Station. There he ate a leisurely lunch, as there was no train to Portstead for a couple of hours. Upon his arrival at the manor he was unable to find Mercedes Quero. He wished to consult with her before questioning Lady Ursula a proceeding from which he shrank, so he wandered through the gardens and park in search of her. He came at length to the pastures where the manor horses were grazing. From the group of thoroughbreds, outlined against the wide background of cool green meadow, frisked a pony, tossing his long white mane, kicking his little hoofs in the air, rearing on his haunches, and chortling in sheer mad glee. Mr. Clavering almost cried out in his astonishment. He knew that piebald, shaggy little Shetland pony, in answer to his call of Tony, the meddlesome little creature bounded up to the fence, and stood a moment regarding him with restless eyes glancing fire. But when Mr. Clavering put forth a cautious hand to stroke the velvety pink nose, the pony was off again in frolicsome mad flight. As Mercedes Quero did not return to the manor that afternoon or evening, Mr. Clavering was forced to keep this discovery to himself. He was very curious to know where the detective had gone, and her unexplained absence caused him to feel that she was on the verge of making a disclosure, and he dreaded it without knowing exactly why. He could not bring himself to question Lady Ursula in regard to Thompson, and he saw that she was as nervous over the detective's absence—her identity was now known to all—as he was himself. She seemed to be expecting some message, and to be unable even to attempt composure. Of Meldrum she spoke several times, feelingly, and with a certain pride. Indignation over his detention she showed none, 
Her attitude toward him made Mr. Clavering more apprehensive. If she could believe Meldrum guilty, it would be hard indeed to convince others of his innocence. He would have given much to be able to read this woman's heart and find out what she really believed and what she knew about her brother's murder. As it was, he could only wait until Mercedes Quero should return. Robert had spent the day in West Haven interviewing magistrates and lawyers in Meldred's behalf, and though he had met with utter failure in his attempt to release him, it was his intention to try again the next day. Robert was very bitter against the whole legal profession, and his warm advocacy of Meldrum raised Mr. Clavering's opinion of him, although his manner toward his sister was rather unsatisfactory. He was kind to her, and even at times affectionate, but it seemed that he cherished some hidden resentment against her. Mr. Clavering would often catch him staring at her in a curious, frowning way. She appeared unconscious of this, and whenever she could free her mind from what was weighing on it, treated him as she always had, with a fond and doting affection, the unwisdom of which had helped to spoil him as much as had his father's and brother's harshness. To her he would always be Robin, the little brother to be petted and shielded. Robert spent the evening on the terrace with Elsie Baring, and Mr. Clavering, seeing them so happy and absorbed in each other, was seized with a pang of loneliness, and conquering the little hard feeling he cherished against Lady Pevensey, asked her to play piquet. Perhaps she was somewhat ashamed of the deception she had practiced on him. At any rate, she was extremely gracious and allowed him to win every rubber. In the flush of his victories, he found courage to ask her the question that he had long contemplated. She affected to be overcome by the suddenness of it, and protested that it was so unexpected that an answer at present was fairly impossible. Finally, when urged, she admitted, with much play of fan and eyes, that there was no one in the world whom she so honored and esteemed as she did Mr. Clavering. But, she said, she could not yet bear the thought of putting anyone in dear Eustace's place. She did not offer to be a sister to him, but instead promised to set apart two nights a week for playing piquet. Mr. Clavering went up to his room rather forlornly, but an hour's reflection did much toward convincing him that possibly things were best as they were. If Lady Pevensey had chosen to marry him, he would have had to give up his treasured flat in Mayfair, probably the invaluable Jenkins, since Lady Pevensey and the valet cordially disliked each other, and, of course, his clubs, the deceased Eustace, had been obliged to. It was doubtless pleasanter to have a dictatorial woman like Lady Pevensey for a friend than for a wife. Consoled by this reflection, he summoned Jenkins to prepare him for bed, where he was soon asleep and dreaming of playing piquet with the deceased Eustace. The next morning, as he was coming from the breakfast-room, he heard the sound of wheels on the driveway, and hastening to the door saw Mercedes Quero alighting from a fly. She wore a travelling suit and carried a small bag. She looked tired. Her pallor was more noticeable than usual, her features a little drawn, but her eyes were positively brilliant, a sign that she had successfully followed up some clue. "'You have been to London?' demanded Mr. Clavering, after a brief greeting. "'I was there last night,' she answered in quick, incisive tones. "'So you couldn't trust me to question Rose?' he said disappointedly. "'I haven't been wasting my time on that silly little fool,' she said impatiently. "'Where is Lady Ursula? I must see her at once.' Mr. Clavering rang for a footman, 
who finally discovered that her ladyship was in the south garden. On the way there, Mr. Clavering, who was bursting with the importance of the clue he had come upon, informed the detective that he had seen Mavis's Shetland pony in the manor pastures. Pshaw! shrugged Mercedes Quero. I knew he was there before I went down to the village yesterday morning. Mr. Clavering was too crushed to ask how she knew, and he preserved an abashed silence until they caught sight of Lady Ursula among the roses, a shade hat upon her bright hair, and on her arm a garden basket filled with the flowers she had been gathering. When she saw Mercedes Quero, an expression of unqualified terror flashed into her face. "'I am sorry that you have had difficulty in finding me,' she remarked, struggling to subdue her emotions. "'But I wanted to pick these flowers myself for—for for Lord Meldrum. I had intended driving to West Haven this morning.' "'You will not need to, Lady Ursula,' said Mercedes Quero gently. "'I have just come from West Haven. Lord Meldrum has been set free.' Mr. Clavering feared that Lady Ursula was again going to faint, but she recovered herself by a sheer force of will. "'Lord Meldrum freed!' she repeated in a dazed manner. "'What can that mean?' There was almost horror in her tone. Mr. Clavering viewed her with a righteous indignation. Here he was, simply a friend, hardly able to contain his joy at Meldrum's unexpected acquittal, while she, the woman on whom Meldrum had lavished the unselfish devotion of years, exhibited no emotion save dismay. "'It means,' answered Mercedes Quero in her quiet voice, "'that I have convinced the authorities that Lord Meldrum is not your brother's assassin.' "'You know who is?' Mercedes Quero looked pityingly at Lady Ursula's anguished face. "'Yes, I know.' Lady Ursula shook, but she spoke no word. "'My lady,' said the detective very gently and sympathetically, "'do you feel able to take the eleven o'clock train to London? Sir Julian Travers is dying.' "'Sir Julian Travers!' Mr. Clavering echoed the name with almost a shout. How stupid he had been! It all came to him in a flash. Thompson, the butler, whose frowning visage had seemed so vaguely familiar, was Travers, the sporting baronet, whose spectacular crimes had driven him from England some fourteen years ago. He wondered now how he could have failed to recognize him, changed though he was by the passage of years. Lady Ursula showed no surprise at the name of Sir Julian Travers, but her face hardened and her mouth assumed a bitter curve. "'Is it necessary that I go?' "'He has asked for you.' Lady Ursula put her hands to her throat as if she choked. "'I will go,' she said with an effort. End of chapter 23